0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and on this podcast we're going to discuss a new publication that is out this week, the UK in the EU renegotiation scorecard. So some of our listeners may be aware that there is a debate about British membership of the European Union. David Cameron, the Prime Minister, has promised to renegotiate the terms of British membership and then put the results to a referendum sometime in 2016 or 2017. But there is a shroud of secrecy about what the British demands are going to be. In spite of a number of speeches, the government is scared to lay out all of the demands uh, publicly before it knows that other countries will say yes to them. And on the other side, many member states are refusing to say where they stand on these issues because they don't want to have a hypothetical negotiation in public. And that has left us with something of a vacuum. And ECFR has jumped into that vacuum with two feet and has tried to fill it with this new publication, which builds on the methodology of the annual ECFR scorecard, which looks at where all the different member states are on, on, on different issues and how the EU is performing in those issues. That's something which uh, Susie Dennison has has been running for the last few years. And Susie has been uh, one of the masterminds behind this report. So joining me for this discussion are Susie Dennison, the co-director of of ECFR's European Power Programme, who has uh, coordinated the European renegotiation scorecard, as well as our wider European scorecard for a number of years, And from Berlin is Josef Janning, who is a senior policy fellow and head of our office there. Um, What I'd like to do is is to talk about some of the findings in the UK and the EU renegotiation scorecard, but then also to think about the politics in some of the different member states and how uh, that might evolve over the months ahead as uh, the uh, package uh, starts to be agreed, which is most likely to be either in the council uh, in December of, of this year uh though some people predict that it might spill out into the spring of next year before there is a, a final deal so Susie do you want to talk us through both uh what the 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 uh issues are uh, and then what some where some of the member states are in your reform scorecard
1: yeah so basically um uh it's it, it, it the the UK's negotiating um, position um, is still um to some extent, unclear. Um, so, what we have um, what we have based our um, our work on here is um, a series of recent speeches by UK government ministers um, on uh, what issues they're planning to look at as part of the renegoti- renegotiation process. Um, and um, am- among those, we, we we boiled those down to essentially ten um, demands that we expect um, the UK um, to push uh, in in the context of discussions with with EU leaders. Um, the these range from um, a commitment to enhancing the single market um, and pushing trade agreements um, to a series of um, controls around immigration from new member states, immigration within the EU, access to benefits, um, to um, uh, the, the, the larger um, structural questions about, uh, about the EU, uh, a greater say for uh, um, national parliaments um, allowing them to be able to block regulations in the future and um, the, perhaps the most existential at all the opt-out um, of ever closer union as a principle um, and a workable deal, um, workable for the UK, uh, which allows a voice, if even if not a vote, um, on discussions uh, between Eurozone members. Um, so we've taken um, these 10 demands, and essentially we've conducted um, uh, a series of interviews um, of, uh, of around 100 uh, policymakers and thinkers um, across um, the 10 critical EU states for these discussions, um, and we've developed this 10 by 10 matrix where we've rated each reform um, on the basis of the likelihood um, that other member states will um, accept it. So um, where um, another partner member state is likely to support it, we We've given it a green light um, where they're likely to um, support it with some strings, some caveats. Uh, We've given it an amber light and where um, we um, don't believe that the UK will be able to get um, support from the member state at this point on this issue, uh, we've given it a red light. And the picture um, that has emerged from this very first cut is that this is a big challenge for the UK. Um, At the moment, um, uh, uh, we assess Cameron to to have less than 1,000 Support on less than a third of the data points uh, which this ten by ten matrix throws up we 're planning to use this um, this process um, uh, and, and update it over the coming coming months and roll it out to, the, to all twenty eight member states at the moment we 've looked um, at, um the 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 largest um, EU states with which um, the uh, uh, the UK has to contend on these issues um, plus um, the like-minded um, countries uh Sweden uh, Denmark Netherlands and Ireland um, who are who are more likely to be core ali- allies um, for the UK and the picture is interesting um firstly um, it's clear that um uh, although uh, Sweden Denmark and um, N- Netherlands and Ireland are natural allies and And indeed, Denmark has set out that they do want to be as helpful to the UK as they can on this there is clear common common ground on trade questions um, uh, but when it comes down to some of the migration positions uh, even among the natural allies um, there's there's a more hardline resistance to some of what the UK is trying to do um, some of the issues around access to benefits there's a belief in these other states that actually the UK can do this within existing um, legislation and there's no need to push this as a European level um, but that in itself ought to send sort of uh, warning uh, messages um, to the UK about how it about this. Um, And then um, the other um, clear point is that there is um, a fairly uh, cohesive Franco-German view um, on a lot of these reform questions that the UK is going to try and push. um, And uh, that's going to be a clear negotiating challenge um, for for, for the UK government in terms of how they handle that.
0: So that's a a great... uh, way into the, this wider discussion which is uh, in an area where Joseph, you've been thinking a lot because I think what comes out of the, the survey as Susie says is there are three um, kind of main groupings of countries there are countries who are basically all weather friends with some caveats like um, the, the ones that Susie mentioned, particularly northern European countries, Ireland, the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark. There are countries that are in favour of free market reforms, but maybe sceptical about some of the other areas. So that might include some of the eastern European countries, but also uh, the gov- current governments in Italy and, and Spain. Um, and then... There are um, countries that are more sympathetic on the on the sort of uh, uh, um, <clears throat> uh, euro ins, euro outs. Um, uh, questions, uh, particularly those that are not in the eurozone, but there don 't seem to be very many countries that are very sympathetic to British agenda on uh, benefits and on uh, transitional controls on on migration there 's a lot of red and amber in that part of the, the world yes. what, what kind of coalitions do you do you think uh, might emerge from uh, around these sorts of things, and how 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 much success do you think Britain is going to have at turning these amber and uh, and red dots into into green ones over the next few months?
2: Uh, well, Mark, in, in my view, it uh, the the analysis very clearly shows that it's going to be a, a really uphill effort uh, for the Cameron government. Uh, to deliver uh, on its pledge because uh, um, these these groups there is not much movement um, uh, and there are there there's a principal difficulty uh, that the UK faces that is uh, it's non-involvement uh, in so many of the current issues that are high on the agenda of other member states because it is not a member uh, of uh, the eurozone because it is not a part of Schengen And I think uh, the uh, uh, current position uh, on the European refugee crisis, uh, an issue we discussed last week in the ECFR podcast, uh, has contributed to widening the channel by another few miles and may also alienate, to a certain degree, uh, some of the states that you listed in the group of old friends, like uh, Sweden uh, and uh, uh, the Netherlands in particular. Um, I think in Germany and a number of other continental member states, it is still puzzling to uh, uh, imagine a member state seeking renegotiation as a precondition to remain a member uh, of the Union. So it's going to be very difficult for Cameron to portray the British effort as an effort that seeks to improve the EU uh, and not primarily seeks to uh, kind of improve. Uh, the the odds for uh, the UK uh, alone. So I think again in this milieu, uh, it is it's going to be very difficult to uh, win new friends uh, and to score points uh, beyond uh, the ones that the report already uh, highlights very adequately.
0: So two kind of key principles emerging from that. One, uh, the idea that if you want to get solidarity from others, it's a good idea to show it yourself. And secondly, um, that you have to work very hard to show that you want the EU to be better for everyone rather than just pushing uh, British exceptionalism. Susie, do you think that there there is some scope out of the current crises that the EU is dealing with at the moment for Britain to... To try and win friends and influence people,
1: um, I think uh, I think that, that there is scope, um, but I, I think that um, it's fair to say that um, on a lot of the the current political debates, um, the UK has started quite badly. Um, you know, uh, the the discussion um, around um, uh, migration, the migration crisis that Josef alluded to. Um, the UK has shown anything but solidarity um, for either the southern states of the Mediterranean um, in terms of um, supporting search and rescue operations um, last year. Uh, Finally, that position shifted um, uh, in May um, this year. Um, But but frankly, it was too little too late. And then um, uh, the UK has again, um, uh, over the summer with the crisis um, on the border um, at at Calais with France, um, shown very little willing um to uh to to burden share even in relation to the to the group of uh, refugees that are specifically trying to come to the uk um so um i think that uh there is some ground to make up on and um, if the uk wants to sort of um Push this um, this message that um, it, it wants to improve Europe for everyone, and it does have um, a, a future vision of itself um, within the group as as a as, as a core state. Um, but that said. Um, uh, you know we shouldn't shy away from the fact that um the uk does matter hugely um to um uh to to european power as a whole um uh, uh and you know this is something we've been str- tracking with our foreign policy scorecards um uh over the past five years and and you can see there that when you look at a granular level at different policy issues um there are many many questions on which the uk um leads in a foreign policy sense and where it doesn't lead provides um, um, mm-hmm core diplomatic input um, uh, it, it also has clout um, uh, on the international stage with its role at the un with the size of its army and so on so you know even just in terms of foreign policy um uh, the uh, other member states um, see a lot of stake uh, at stake um in terms of um uh, whether or not the U- uk stays in and this is something we're planning to explore um a lot more over 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 the coming months um uh, so uh, so i i think that um you know, uh, the, the UK um, brings a lot to the table in terms of um, EU membership. Um, but that, but what this study has shown us is that that will only take it so far in terms of what it's what the UK is called the renegotiation process. And it will have to show um, a willingness to work with Europe um, uh, and not only sort of rest on the laurels of its its historic contribution.
0: So. Maybe we can go into a bit more detail around some of the sets of issues. I mean, I think from the scorecard, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of support uh, in many different member states for enhancing the single market, for competitiveness, cutting red tape, signing free trade agreements. Um, Those uh, are almost all green. There are a few dots of amber. But it seems that Britain doesn't need to persuade other member states that it's in their interest to do these sorts of things. They seem to be very much... Uh, part of a reform consensus within the current EU, the two sets of areas where there 's maybe a bit less uh, consensus are to do with the euro ins and outs and how uh, the treaties deal with those sorts of issues, but also questions to do with with um, uh, free movement and access to benefits. Maybe we can go in on those two a bit more uh, in a bit more detail, um, so just to set up this question of the euro ins and outs. There was a very interesting moment earlier in the summer when the Greek uh, bailout, the third package, was being discussed. And um, in the middle of the night, the Eurozone decided to use an obscure fund that was set up at the beginning of the crisis called the European Financial Stabilisation Mechanism, EFSM, to, to, to bail out Greece. And this was... Uh, seen as a horrendous act of betrayal by um, British politicians um, because in 2010, David Cameron had got a a clear and unanimous political agreement that the FSM would not be used for Eurozone bailouts because it was... um, Uh, something which non-Eurozone members, including Britain, had contributed to after it was initially used to assist Ireland and and Portugal. And was seen by many, uh, particularly in the British Treasury, as a sign of the sort of dangers of Eurozone caucusing. And one of the uh, uh, warning lights about how Britain could exist in the European Union, where it was being excluded from key decisions. And in the back of people's minds is, is obviously a fear that the City of London, which is hugely important for uh, for, Brit- for the British economy, could be subject to unfriendly policies taken where Britain doesn't even have a voice in the discussions because they're done within the Eurozone, which now has a qualified majority um, uh, was on the other hand, I, th- I think the British policy was seen as as unbelievably selfish and lacking in solidarity because the the EU uh, project had, well, the Euro project had been uh, on the abyss. It was not clear that there was going to be a deal over Greece, and then finally things had come together and against the odds, uh, the Greek government had had had, had, had uh, changed its position. Um, and there was this kind of small technical thing which involved not very much money which was which which was being done so um, it, I think it showed the dangers on both sides uh, but also um, i think shows how how uh, well, i mean I think that will be a critical discussion a oh, lengthy setup for it but yourself how how do you see that particular issue playing out over time? Do you think that there are some fixes which might uh, create enough confidence in London that uh that the single market will, will remain uh, intact, that Britain can have a voice in those discussions, but without undermining it from the perspective of the Eurozone?
2: Yep. Well, from a German perspective, um, um, the, the, the problem seems to be a bit uh, also the lack of consistency in the British position. Um, because when when uh the uh, situation arose that you mentioned um, uh this was a fund if i'm not mistaken that was initially set up uh, uh to uh, um, provide resources in banking crisis so it's specifically to uh, aid the banking system uh system in the EU um, and uh, there was such a need also with regard to Greece so it was uh, it was also a matter of interpretation whether this was uh, a sort of a eurozone bailout move or whether it was uh, a move that would help Greece that would also facilitate an agreement, uh, at least uh, marginally, um, between the eurozone uh, or among the eurozone partners regarding Greece. Um, so, you know, in a in in a different world, the United Kingdom would uh, uh, not block. Uh, such a move, but rather be interested in seeing that um, uh, the Eurozone crisis management succeeds uh, in return uh, for uh, Eurozone countries being uh, aware of the fact that they should uh, be cautious not to decouple the non Eurozone countries because they will need them. And uh, the concerns that you can hear in the city that uh, um, uh it may be that, that the british position could then harm over the longer term uh the role of the city in europe uh, is kind of uh, linked to this issue uh, you know if if you uh, act uh in a european way on this uh, these concerns will be much less but uh, if you play up those minor issues uh, like the efsm uh, issue then you can understand why city bankers uh, will will have such concerns Uh, And in a a wider sense, I think this also um, is uh, a point regarding uh, the uh, single market uh, and related issues. So uh, there would be much more support for a strong uh, move on the free trade side, on completing the single market side, if Britain wasn't questioning uh single market spin-off policies. And that is what in the eyes of many uh EU policymakers uh Schengen is. Um, and the Schengen related issues, uh the freedom of mobility is directly linked to the single market. So you weaken your own case um significantly if you say we need more single market but less um, um uh policy making in terms of the consequences of the single market.
0: But there are also specific issues to do with the sort of regulations of the city, because there are a number of things which have come out of, which have been proposed, which which the City of London has kind of taken uh, umbrage at. And the Treasury, which is uh, where in the deep and distant past you used to work, Susie, um, is particularly concerned that uh, people seem to be more willing to take pot shots at the the British financial service industry than they are, say, at the German car industry, even though yeah. it plays a similarly important part in in, um, uh, in, the, in the British economy. What kinds of um, specific policies, Susie, do you think the Treasury is going to be pushing to, to, to try and protect it? From that, Given that it's both not in the euro, but it's also not in other policies like uh, banking union, which might uh, give it a voice if, if it were in them
1: um well i think um i think this is this is quite unclear at the moment um uh, in in terms of um in, in terms of the specific um policies that that we're going to see um uh, in in the context of these discussions but i think that what is clear is that um uh as the renegotiation process emerge, um, emerges um, over over the coming months, um, the uh, the issues around regulation, um, the um, impacts, um, the ability of the city to operate um, uh, freely, um, this is going to be a sort of a core red line area, a core red light for the UK um, in terms of uh, in terms of whether or not it can get a deal um, uh, out of these renegotiations. Which um, uh, which the government is willing to say works for Britain, um, and um, I think uh, that linked to that, in terms of the debate in the UK around um, the upcoming referendum, um, the voices coming out of the city are going to be some of the most um, uh, critical in terms of how the debate swings. And we've started to see um, uh, we've started to see some business leaders um, uh, coming out um, uh, on on. On on both sides, actually, um, of of the discussion, Um, but I think um, this will be uh, one of the most um, sensitive areas uh, as as we move forward.
0: But there are some kind of specific ideas which have been put forward. Like, for example, one idea is the idea of an emergency break for for, for, both for Britain to have observer status in the eurozone and then some sort of emergency break which it could kind of pull. I mean, the more the bigger kind of question is, is about double-majority voting, which is what you have in the European Banking Authority, where you need a majority of both Eurozone and non-Eurozone members. So as uh, more and more countries join the Eurozone, that looks like a British veto rather than a kind of uh, double-majority issue. Are those sorts of things which you think um, might have any um, uh, hope of, of being supported by other countries, Joseph?
2: Well, um, i the eurozone is not is not standing still, so it's a moving target. Uh, I think that will complicate uh, the issue for the UK. Uh, look at the latest uh, uh, propositions uh, uh, made in Paris. Uh, Macron's plan to kind of reinvent Europe, to to re-found Europe, uh, which builds on earlier uh, um, common position papers that uh, he has produced together with his German counterpart Sigmar Gabriel. Uh, actually, Merkel and Hollande uh, are in the, in the process of uh, um, discussing with their cabinets a range of these issues in light of uh, future Franco-German uh, initiatives, uh, which all seek to kind of strengthen and deepen the Eurozone. Uh, on both sides, uh, there is a consensus on a permanent um, a Eurozone commission or Eurozone finance minister. Uh, which was last discussed as a permanent president of the Eurogroup, which is not something that, that is seen with uh, great sympathy in uh, London. Uh, there is the idea, uh, I think there's also quite a consensus on on the general principle, but not on the details, uh, that there will be a sort of a Eurozone budget uh, that will be a transfer mechanism that will, uh, could serve as an uh, investment um, uh, uh, instrument um, uh, that could uh, ad- actually also be the start of uh, moving into eurobonds further down the line. So there are a number of things uh, in these uh, talks or in this kind of emerging consensus about where the eurozone should go uh, in the future uh, that are very critical for London, um, and uh, uh, the the uh, uh, rift would only deepen uh, if um, this was then. Uh, becomes, uh, would then become subject to a political veto along the lines of um, uh, a, a decoupling of non-Eurozone uh, member states. So I think there needs to be a creative position on uh, what does it mean to be uh, coupled. The non-Euro-ins uh, being coupled uh, to the Eurozone. And I think there probably the the position of the Polish government is much more uh, creative uh, in the eyes of Berlin and Paris uh, than London's position is.
0: Okay, that's very clear. Um, So there's one other big set of questions which is gonna be the most salient, I suppose, in any British referendum, uh, which is the the issues to do with with benefits and free movement of, of people. We had a big discussion about the refugee crisis in last week's podcast, which both of you were, were in. Susie, to what extent do you think that that wider refugee crisis will help or hinder British attempts to, to get other countries to to support it on some of the reforms and, and the question of free movement?
1: Um. I think um I think these are going to be um, difficult um, discussions and I think that the impact of the the refugee crisis across Europe is going to be such that um, there is both um, uh, a sort of uh, a heightened sensitivity in member states about um the impact which migration has on um on on domestic economies um and and uh, particularly on services at a local level um uh, but there is also um uh an increased awareness um between your Euro- european governments about um uh the the political stakes um for for each member states um on this issue so you know i think um there are there are elements which could um provide some sympathy um for 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 the uk um that um there's a sense between european governments that um that they are that they're, they're sort of they're all facing similar challenges um uh, in terms of the, the impact on domestic politics, but um, but as I as I alluded to earlier, there's also a sense that um, within that debate, the UK um, is is really not pulling its weight. Um, so a lot will depend on on how um, uh, the UK sort of rises to the um, to the challenge which um, Merkel's put forward that we were discussing in last week's po- um, podcast. Um, but I think you know this is the area of the um, of the ten by ten matrix um, on the UK and Europe score. That, that, that is the reddest. Um, this is the area where um, uh, the other member states are both... Um, uh uh nervous about what the uk is putting forward um but also they feel that there are some fundamental um principles about non-discrimination um between eu citizens um within the eu um that are at stake and which many states even among um the natural allies um the sweden denmarks netherlands ireland um uh, that 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 really they they view these this principle as 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 non-negotiable um so um i think uh, the UK would be wise um, and we understand they are um, ex- to explore um, as much um, doing as much of this domestically within existing legislation as they can and, um, and indeed the feedback from countries such as France and Sweden actually on some of the issues around um, access to benefits um, uh, only for those um, uh, who've lived and worked in um, a member state for a certain period of time um, uh, also um, restricting benefits for dependents not in the UK we we heard from some member states that this is this is basically stuff that they do under existing EU legislation already, and so they're a bit confused as to why the UK would want to raise this in a European context rather than dealing with it domestically. Um, So, so, so yeah, I think um, that that what comes out of our scorecard is a clear kind of handling message for the UK government that um, these will be the hardest areas to deal with at a European level, so um, uh, as much as possible they should be kept separate from um, any reform agenda.
0: So we're going to be tracking how opinion evolves on both sides, both looking at how the British government's policies are changed and how different member states respond to them in the weeks and months ahead. We're going to every two weeks. Um, update the renegotiation scorecard on our website and we can see how successful they are at doing that. But I think there are three big lessons that the British government should take from our discussion so far. The first is to show that they want Europe to work and that this is about making Europe stronger rather than weaker. Secondly, they need to show solidarity to other member states um, if they want to win friends and influence people and, and and get them to support them on measures where Britain uh, needs some help. And thirdly, I think that there is a real question about the credibility of the of, of, of uh, Cameron as a pro-European, um, which he has to uh, enhance by standing up to his own backbenchers and to eurosceptic forces in Britain. I think that unless uh, other member states are sure that he's in it to win it and that he's very serious about keeping Britain in Europe, they're going to be reluctant to make any concessions to him. Thanks a lot for for a really good discussion. This, we've come to the stage where we normally have our bookshelf segment, but our bookshelves at ECFR are so full with things about the British question that we're going to recommend that you look at them. <laughs> Earlier in the year, we published a report on the the British problem and what it means for Europe. We've got a lot of blog posts on different topics. And then, uh, most importantly, is the uh, European renegotiation scorecard, which we've been talking about for for the last period of time. So it'd be great if you read those things and give us comments on them. There are links to all of those things on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. And from Susie Dennison, Josef Yaning, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke. Our editor is Katarina Botel Azzinaro.